Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of us gathered here and all of God's sons and daughters around the world who are seeking to worship him and be transformed by him in this hour of worship. I want to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, and in just a little while, we're going to dig right into the passage for our study, Matthew chapter 5. On our way there, let me remind you where we have been. We are now, uh, I think, what, 12 weeks into this series that we're calling How to Be Human. And our attempt is to marvel at this reality that according to the Word of God, God favors human beings pretty highly crowns us as according to the, the psalmist with, with uh, uh, a kind of God-likeness, the capacity to live in the world as if we actually have been created in the image of God, to behave like God in the world by caring for one another, lifting up those who are down, bringing in those who are out. And this series has been an attempt to look at each of our human experiences, every kind of experience in our human journey, but through the lens of the truly human one, the Son of Man, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. So we've looked at what it means to exist in this world in a different kind of way, with a different kind of humanity with one another. We've looked about what it means to, to fail and to not see failure as the end, but the very beginning of something new. We've looked about uh, what it looks like to, to, to experience vulnerability and the power of vulnerability rather than simply seeing vulnerability as a weakness. We've talked about grief. We've talked about anger. We've talked about fear. And all through this journey, we're attempting to see each of these very real human experiences through the lens of Jesus, the truly human one. Now, there is one experience that binds all of us, many experiences that bind us, but there's one that we all have in common. No matter who you are, where you're from, or what your mommy and daddy's name are, you and I have the capacity to hurt one another. We have this proclivity to bring pain to each other, to harm. In fact, one of the very first stories of our humanness post-Garden of Eden is a story about a brother who rises up against his brother and takes his life. And God cries out to Cain and says to him these words, what have you, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out from the, from the soil. 
As if creation itself, the very created order, groans, cries out at the reality that you and I have the capacity to hurt each other, harm each other, bring woundedness and injury to one another by the things that we do and say, and sometimes by the things that we don't do that should have done, and things we don't say that we should have said. Live long enough, and somewhere, somebody sometime will cross the line with you. They'll reject you. They will betray you. They will cross a boundary and injure you. They will sin against you, and it will not be your fault. And other times, it'll be you, and you cross the line, and you you violate a trust. You breach an agreement. You sin against another, and it will be you. It'll be all you. So what do you do then? Because deeply embedded in the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is we believe with our whole soul that things that are broken can be repaired. That when life falls apart, it becomes unraveled through Christ, it can be mended again. So the Lord has laid upon my heart this message today because I don't think we can make it through a sermon series about how to be human without addressing the very human experience for the need of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because somebody here, I promise you, gathered in the sanctuary or the family life center or someone who is watching and tuning into this moment online, whether right now or later this week, I promise you, someone is carrying in your heart, maybe in the pit of your stomach, a weight, a kind of injury, a wound that is still so fresh and open that it's everywhere. And no matter where you turn, you think of the thing that happened and you you are triggered to remember the pain that you first felt when it happened, when they violated you, when they injured you, when they sinned against you, and you carry this around with you, even here into worship. But there are others of you gathered in this very same hour, maybe right next to that person, maybe you'll ride next to them on the way home in your car as you leave. There are others of you who are here not feeling a kind of injury, but feeling a kind of guilt or a shame because you know that you are the one who stepped over the line and you wish you could go back and undo the thing that you did, but you can't. So what do you do? So I want to talk for just a few moments about the power of forgiveness. But can I just admit something to you? If I did a sermon on forgiveness and tried to do it all in one shot, we'd be here all through lunch. We'd have to call Uber Eats, Monty. We would have to, I don't know if they can handle that kind of order. So do you know what I want to do? In this series called How to Be Human, I want to spend the next three weeks talking about forgiveness. Because there are some here who need to know what to do if they have to seek the forgiveness of another. And there are those here who understand and you even want to grant forgiveness, but everything in you is keeping you from giving it. And there are some whose biggest struggle is learning not to forgive the offender out there, but learning to forgive the one in here. 
And, and, and then what do you do if you want to forgive? You know you need to forgive. You know there's freedom. There's a lightness of being when you forgive. But, but what if the I'm sorry never comes? What do you do if they never admit to the thing they did and they never confess it to you? How do you make it through the journey of forgiveness then? So the next several weeks up to Easter and including Easter, we are talking about the power of one of the dominant themes and the teachings of Jesus, forgiveness. And today, the focus is very, very specific. Today, I want to talk about seeking forgiveness from others. Seeking forgiveness from others. So in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, would you hear these words as they come from verse 23? So when you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, when you are in the act of worship, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and sister or sister, and then come and offer your gift. This is one of the most fascinating of all the teachings of Jesus, because Jesus knows what you and I know, and that is in the, in the moment of worship, worship is how a people of faith sustain relationship with God. We gather in worship and are shaped by the, the singing and the reading of sacred scripture and the proclaiming of the word, and, and in the context of worship, we are shaped, reshaped, we are formed, reformed. I love what Walter Brueggemann says about imagination. He says that imagination, I've told you this before, that imagination is the human capacity to host and embrace a world other than the one that is right in front of you. But, but that's what we do in worship, see. It is we provoke a holy imagination to come into the space and host and embrace a world other than the one that is right in front of us when we leave this place. We call it the, the kingdom of God. And in the shaping power of worship, we, we gather in order to be transformed. And, and nothing could be more important, yet Jesus says, even if you gather for worship, to work on sustaining this vertical relationship that you have with God. And in the midst of working on that vertical relationship you have with God, you become aware that someone in your life has a problem with you. In other words, while you're working on your vertical relationship with God, if you become aware that there is a problem in a horizontal relationship that you have with a brother or a sister, he says, stop the worship. Leave your gift out the altar and take initiative. Go and seek out that brother or sister and make peace. Reconcile with them first and then come back to worship, which is, which is astounding to me that it is more important in the mind of God that we be made reconciled to one another more important than the hour of worship itself. To take initiative, and notice the language that was read a moment ago. It doesn't say, when you're in worship, and you're thinking about all the things that people have done wrong to you, it doesn't say that. And Jesus doesn't say, when you're sitting in worship, and then suddenly you're aware of how much you have become a victim to everybody else's nonsense. No. 
He says, if you're in worship and you become aware that a brother or sister has a problem with you, whether you think they should have a problem with you or not is another matter altogether. But if you become aware that they have a problem with you, you go. Reconcile with them and then come back and make your offering, which I find fascinating. He does say, if you need to leave worship to go make peace with your brother and sister, leave, go do it, but leave your offering. <laughs> so we have offering boxes in the back, you know, anyway. So how do you do this? If the journey of forgiveness involves taking initiative, if, if it means you're gathered in worship and something provokes the heart, what happens? But see, that's what good worship does. Many times we think that good worship is, is a worship hour that includes songs that we prefer or maybe a formality style. Some prefer more formal, some prefer, prefer informal. But the truth is good worship is not about that. Good worship is about something deeper. Good worship is not about satisfying our, our sensibilities. It's not about placating our preferences. All those things are important. What good worship really is, good worship transforms us. It means that we gather in this place and we fix our minds, attention, and our hearts, affection upon Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, not forsaking or not, for, uh, not despising its shame. We fix our eyes on him because when we fix our eyes on him, they're not on ourselves. And then suddenly when we are fixed upon him, we fix the gaze of our attention upon his character. And we become mindful of his loveliness and his holiness of how gracious he is and full of mercy and how he's the one who lifts up those who are down and brings in those who are out, we become mindful of how patient he is and how forgiving he is. And when in worship, we become mindful of all that he is, we simultaneously become mindful of all those things that are missing in us. And, th and then we realize, I said some things this week I shouldn't have said to him. And, and she had trusted me with this information and, and I, I blew it. I, and suddenly in worship, as you're fixing your eyes upon Christ, if you are truly fully present in worship, then you see in his holiness parts of you that are not holy. And it might be that in that moment you are mindful of someone you have offended. Jesus says, when that happens, pay attention to it. Take initiative. Get up and go. Make peace. And you say, how? Well, I want to suggest to you that if you're in a position today where you are mindful, even in the midst of worship today, that you have offended someone, that you have been the one that crossed the boundary, I want to suggest three phrases that embody three kinds of actions that will help you in making the journey toward forgiveness. I want to call it the threefold formula for seeking forgiveness. Listen, here's my disclaimer. There is no formula for forgiveness. 
I mean, true forgiveness is messy. True forgiveness ebbs and flows like the tide at the ocean. That True forgiveness takes a long time, and, and you speed up, and you slow down, and you recycle the pain. Forgiveness is not about a formula. But if you are here today, and you know you are someone You are someone who needs to take initiative in seeking forgiveness. There is a formula to the kind of choices you can make. And I want to suggest they are these. To learn to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? In fact, can we just practice that for a moment? Let's get some muscle memory here. Let's let's kind of stretch our soul a little bit and rehearse what you're going to have to do over lunch with somebody today. Would you just repeat after me? Say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Now, I want you to do it again. I won't prompt you, but I want you to do it loud and strong. We'll do it twice in a row. Ready? Yes, I will. You are forgiven. You don't have to beg. Today... I want to give you a word about each of these words. The journey toward reconciling begins with, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not easy sometimes to say, I'm sorry. Sometimes it requires a crucifixion of ego, which is what good worship ought to do, right? We learn sometimes best from our children. And maybe you feel like young Liam, third grader, who did something wrong to his friend Brody. His teacher, Mrs. P, or Miss P, made him write a letter to apologize for what he had done. So this is what he said. It's hard to read, but there it is on the screen. Dear Brody, Miss P made me write you this note. All I want to say sorry for is not being sorry. Because I tried to feel sorry, but I don't. Right? That, my friends, is sometimes where we live. Sometimes we're not sorry. Sometimes we're sorry we got caught. See, that's what I call the unapology. I mean, true reconciliation and forgiveness begins with, I'm sorry, but sometimes we practice what I call the unapology. The unapology. That's what our boys did growing up. One would offend the other, and I'd say, you go apologize to your brother, and, and they would. They would go and say, sorry. I mean, it's the right words, but it's with a tone that basically says, I wish you'd dry up and blow away. You know, sorry. But, but the kids aren't the only ones to do it. We do it as well with one another. Adults, we're like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's an un-apology. That takes no ownership at all over what I've done. Sorry you feel this way. Sorry you're hurt. You know. But that's not unlike the passive voice apology. You know what a passive voice apology is? Well, regrettably, things were done. Mistakes were made. You know? That's not an apology. But that's as close as sometimes we're willing to go. Or it might be a little bit like the conditional apology. Uh, I'm sorry if you disagree. I'm sorry if this makes you angry. Right? But the true journey toward reconciliation, the true journey of forgiveness, 
which is on the path to reconciliation, is being able to express your true sorrow over the thing that was broken. In the Bible, the best example we have is King David. He forced this woman into his palace, a woman who was a wife to another man, one of his favored military leaders, and he then gets her pregnant, and then he covers up his sin by plotting to sabotage him on the battlefield, and now she has the baby, and then the baby dies, and everywhere that David looks, he is surrounded by memories, triggers to make him recall the thing that he did. He sinned against her, he sinned against her husband, he sinned against Israel, he sinned against God, he sinned against himself. And the most sincere prayer is found in Psalm 51, where we hear these very penitent words, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. The true path to seeking forgiveness begins not with the right words, but with a broken heart. Are you able to allow your heart to break a little over the thing that is breaking their heart that you did? Can I show you where I saw that in action this week? It was, it, it was amazing. So th- these, these two little boys, five and three-ish, got a hold of mom's telephone. And they go on Amazon and they buy an 86-inch flat-screen TV. Yeah, Amazon delivers it. It's there in her garage when mom gets home, and she calls them out on it, and this is what ensued. What happened here? I'm really sorry. You ordered this on my phone? I'm really sorry. Without asking? And do you know how much this was? Okay. All right. No, I want you to watch the posture there for just a moment. The older brother doesn't even look up. He can't even bring the words. They know my sin is ever before me. I know my transgressions. But the voice of the three-year-old, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. There they are at the altar of Honda. And they can't even look up to see the one that they have offended because they are feeling so rotten because the one person who was the most important person in their lives, they have wronged. And can you hear it in his voice? I really, really, play it one more time. Play it one more time. I'm really sorry. I ordered this on my phone. But I'm really sorry. Without asking. And do you know how much this was? <laughs> Friends, the true path of seeking forgiveness begins with somewhere, sometime, coming to a place where your heart is broken over the thing that you've done. And do you know that with God, God forgives you when you are really sorry? is waiting on you to repair this thing that is broken. But can you begin to feel empathetically the pain that maybe you might have caused another? 
The greatest gift that we can give our children is the gift of learning how to empathize. Learning to feel what another may feel. And the gift of forgiveness begins with recognizing I am sorry. I have hurt you. But it's more than that. It goes from I am sorry to I was wrong. I was wrong. And and if saying I am sorry is hard enough, (laughs) saying I was wrong is even more difficult. Because sometimes the thing that happened, the words that were said, the choice that was made, it may have some complicated circumstances around it. And I I meet so many people whose relationship is kind of locked up. There's like an arrested development to their relationship because they can't move past the thing. And here's why. Because one or both of them believe this myth that if I claim that I was wrong, if I admit that I was wrong, well, then they're going to think that they did nothing wrong and that it's all my fault. Well, two things about that. Number one, it might be all your fault. But number two, the path of forgiveness is not about a ledger and who's keeping score. Seeking forgiveness is simply about taking ownership over the part you had in the breakdown of whatever happened. I love what I heard years ago. I've I've heard it said this way. If the thing that happened, let's say, maybe maybe you are only responsible for about 5% of the thing that happened, Well, seeking forgiveness means taking 100% responsibility for your 5%. If you are only responsible for 5% of the thing that went wrong, the business that collapsed, the relationship that fractured, whatever it was, if you're only responsible for 5% of the thing that went wrong and they are responsible for 95%, Seeking forgiveness is simply about taking 100% responsibility over the 5% that you did. It's between God and them for them to reconcile the 95% they did. One example I came across that really kind of spoke to me in this regard, taking responsibility, I was wrong, comes from another child and another letter that was written. Her name is Evie, and Evie is a Yosemite Junior Ranger. She went to Yosemite Park with her dad, and she committed a grave, grave crime. So she had to write about it, and this is what Evie said. Dear Park Rangers, I am a Yosemite Junior Ranger. I went to Yosemite recently and accidentally brought home two sticks. I know I'm not supposed to take things from the park, so I'm sending them back. Please put them in nature. Please put them in nature. It's not only beautiful, but it is convicting because the best part of that letter is in the first line. I am a Yosemite Junior Ranger. That means I know some things about how to behave in a park. It means I committed to some things. I am responsible for some things. This is who I am. I am a Yosemite junior ranger, and I have not behaved 
like a Yosemite junior ranger, I was wrong. Part of seeking forgiveness, part of true remorse means recognizing that what you have done is not consistent with who you really are. I was supposed to be your friend. I was supposed to have your back and then that thing happened and all hell broke loose in your life and I stayed back and I watched it and I didn't say anything about it. I, I kept my mouth shut about it. I was, I was silent and watched you in agony. I am your friend and I did not behave like a friend. I was wrong. You, you told me this thing in confidence and I was supposed to take this thing to the grave and yet I talked. I opened my mouth. I blabbed about it. And, and now, now you're out there exposed and, and, and vulnerable and alone. And I was wrong. We stood there at the altar with the preacher and the unity candle. And we made some promises. And I, I made some promises. And, and that's who I was. And, and that's who I am. But what I'm saying is that what I have done is not reflective of who I am. I am so sorry. I was wrong. Seeking forgiveness, my sisters and brothers, is about genuinely being brokenhearted over the reality that you have now awakened to this truth that who you are and what you've done no longer match and you want to do something to fix it. And that leads us not only from I am sorry, I was wrong, to will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? I'm not asking you to no longer hurt about the thing. I'm not, I'm not asking you to tell me everything's fine, we're just going to move on and never talk about it. I'm not even saying that we don't need to talk about it. I'm, I'm just saying... Will you give me the opportunity to demonstrate to you who I really am? I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? If you do this, you are doing what you can do. In Romans chapter 12, we read these words. If it is possible... So far as it depends on you, in other words, your 5%, whatever it is that depends on you, live peaceably with all. That means, Jesus says, in the midst of worship, if your heart has been opened up and you have been convicted in the context of worship to go and make reconciliation and peace with another, then when you do that, you are doing what you can do. But let me tell you what to expect. You go to someone and suddenly now you've come to a place where you want to fix it and you could get a variety of responses from them. On the one hand, on one extreme, you could come to them, I am sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And they may say, I've been waiting for this day for years. Yes, I am ready to put all of that behind us and I am ready to move forward and start the next chapter in our story together. They may say, yes, I forgive you. Or 
They may say on the other end of that spectrum, are you kidding me? Seriously? After what you did and the injury that I still bear, you think that three quick phrases are going to fix everything? No, I don't forgive you. And in that moment, you have to remember my sermon on grief a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes when you grieve the thing that has died, it comes with shock. And then it's followed by denial. I cannot believe this thing is happening. I refuse to believe this thing is happening. And then anger, anger, and then renegotiation. See, remember, when you're ready to seek their forgiveness, they may not be ready because they are still grieving the thing that has died. So on the one hand, they may say, yes, I forgive you. On the other hand, they may say, take a hike. I'm not ready. And yet there may be somewhere in the middle. I want to. I really am tired of carrying this burden around on my shoulders. I want to forgive you. I want us to move forward. But I just can't yet. I'm trying, and I just don't know. Because every time I think about the thing, every time I, I'm triggered by it, and I recycle, and I'm angry all over again, and we can have company over, and the family's down for Thanksgiving, and everybody's great, and then they leave, and I'm suddenly feeling it all over again. I want to, but I'm just not ready. And right there, you have to be aware that forgiveness is a journey. Because wounds don't scar overnight. Sometimes the open, gaping wounds that we bear take time to become scars, and then those scars become redemptive stories that we tell and celebrate. But it might be that it's only Saturday for you. See, Friday is where crucifixions take place. Friday is where the thing dies, where the thing that you loved is hung on a cross and crucified, and you see it bleeding there, just a shadowed version of what you thought it once was. Friday is when things die. And we know by faith that Sunday is when things rise. We know this, but it might be in the journey of forgiveness, you're in a Saturday for a long time because the thing has died, it's been buried, but you just don't know what resurrection will look like yet. It's Saturday. But by faith, we remember that you don't, you don't create resurrection. You don't raise the dead, and neither do they. It is God, in God's perfect timing, who will meet you back at the altar. Because when you come back to the altar to present your offering of yourself to God, it is then that God will begin to resurrect in you and in them something more beautiful than it had ever been before.